If you are the sort of sophisticated gentleman or lady who appreciates the finer things in life, such as classical and romantic music for solo piano, perhaps we might recommend you another of life's finest little pleasures, which we like to call... Oui, oui. <laughs> I'm a fancy French man. Oui, oui, monsieur. Love it, I do cold coffee. <laughs> refer to Monsieur Grady and his... How do you say cold in French? Or brew? <laughs> it's a... Le Mont. Le, that's the moon. Uh, <laughs> Sam, you know, you're a French guy. Yeah, well, there's really no word for brew. Okay, speed it up. Get, what's the cold, you know, don't, I don't need a whole French lecture from you. They would, well, they would call it cold brew. Cold bleu. Okay. And, so uh, from nice, and slang from Nice. The cold brew uh, can also be drank hot, brewed. Le hot brew. Uh, for the winter months, we are here to tell you that your favorite cold brew coffee uh, can be microwaved. It can be just brewed in your drip coffee maker if you're buying the New Orleans style ground coffee. If you, like us, are a fan of the Grady's cold brew kit, you can put those bags right into your coffee maker and uh, it comes out just as delicious. Ooh. And it warms you up too. Sacre bleu. It's, uh, we're actually none of the composers that we're probably going to be talking about today are really French, so it doesn't doesn't make sense actually. It's yeah, very little French Debussy presence. Comparison. But, he did uh, uh, talk about um, the impressionists as an influence on this album, so I feel like perhaps he has Monet. some. Maybe he fi- he thinks he's channeling Debussy. <laughs> Well, when you said impressionists, I thought you meant people like Winston. Oh, uh, well, and uh, Billy Joel himself. Yes. Well, don't worry. We'll be going through all the accents today, covering all our bases. Never you fear, because it is the season finale. And we're going to give you everything you want, wanted from this and a lot more that you really didn't want. Going to push your, test your limits. We love you, Grady's. We love you, yeah. listeners. And uh, ready to take this dive with you right now. Monsieur Grady. <laughs> Thank you, Monsieur Grady, for your uh, many gifts. Welcome to the season finale, season one of Late Era, the podcast brought to you by Osiris Media, where we talk about the strange, fascinating, brilliant, horrible, late career left turns by classic musicians. (laughs) Today, we're talking about a celebrated, vaunted, timeless composer by the name of William Joel and his 13th studio album. Fantasies and Delusions. This is a 2001 release, a collection of, well, you don't need me to tell you what it is. This is one of the big ones, baby. But in case you do need me to tell you what it is, this is a collection of solo classical piano music composed by William Joel and performed by his friend, the British Korean pianist Richard Hyunki Ju. And uh, 
this is the this is the mother load. This is what we've been working towards for the last yeah eight months. How long has it been? It uh, feels time. like eight years. I yeah. I uh, yeah. You've heard you guys have heard snippets from from the album throughout our fantasies and delusions segments. You've heard some teasers of some of the heated stuff that we're gonna get into later on. But yeah, I just I'm feeling wistful today, getting ready to bring this huge deluxe episode to you guys the fans my name is andy kush i am the bassist in the band garcia peoples and a contributing editor at pitchfork and a man who knows very little about billy joel my name is winston cook wilson and i make music as winston cw and uh, as office culture and i also co-host the podcast welcome to chicago what would you say your billy joel knowledge level is real quick uh, medium to high okay. high medium uh, my name is Samuel Sadomsky. I am a podcast host and a staff writer at Pitchfork. And I uh, want to thank everyone so much for listening to this podcast, getting this far in it. It's been, um, well, it's been an experience. Mm. And uh, my Billy Joel expertise is uh, dangerously high. And I'm ready to put it to use. Uh, so thanks, everyone. I'm feeling... Here he yeah. goes again. Here he goes again. I was just going to say, I'm feeling at the top of my game physically Good. and psychologically. Uh, all right. Okay, we get it. Before we started rolling uh, this evening, Sam made a record he might have thought was off the record... Uh, made a comment he might have thought was off the record in which he said Billy Joel was, and I quote, my first musical love. Mm. So well, we're going to hold that to you. Yeah. Hold you to that. What I meant by that was, I think most people who know me know I've had like a lifelong intense love of the music of Bruce Springsteen. But the truth is, at the exact same time, I heard Glass Houses by Billy Joel for the first time. And I was maybe even more into that album than I was into Born to Run. Um, and so for a while, like I was really, like Billy Joel was right up there of the artists I really loved. But I think the difference is, as I got older, I, Bruce Springsteen's music started meaning more to me as I matured and I learned more about it, whereas Joel's um, didn't have that same uh, growth. But yeah. Well, we're about to enter a second wave here of this this sickness that has kept us apart for the duration of this podcast, and it's wild that we did a whole yeah. season like this. I've been wanting to talk about fantasies and delusions for as long as I can remember. Um, since or around around when it came out, since around nine eleven, I remember when it came out. I think about it often. I really do. I remember. <laughs> I've thought about it often, and how funny it is that it exists. So it's a big moment for me to do this. Um, yeah, psychologically, I'm in a confused place right now, and it feels like a real culmination to be here doing this with you guys right now. And also, by the time when this airs tomorrow. I've got an album coming out that I'm really excited. By the time you hear this, it will have premiered, I think. So it's a it's a it's a cathartic it's a cathartic time for yeah, me. Yeah, a lot of culminations happening at once, mm-hmm. as as they do in the music over and over again. We've changed a lot over this season. We're not as close as we were at the beginning, but I know that yeah. we can bond together and do what we do best and give the people what they've been what they've been what they've been wanting here from thank you grady and thank you grady thank thank you to grady
Well, as soon as as soon as Winston pulls himself together, we will uh, get into the discussion of this record. Just let us know. It is like uh, the third time we've tried to tape this, and he cries Shut every the single fuck time. Up, Sam. <laughs> Not saying a word. Okay, I'm good. I'm good. This I'm is. Good. I'm just. I have to say, this is extremely unprofessional. Okay, let's just get. I, I don't disagree. And thank you, Late Era fans. We're going to commence the big show tonight. Here we go. Billy Joel's Fantasies and Delusions. It's just sad. One William Joel released his 13th studio album, Fantasies and Delusions, on September 27th, 2001. This is a collection of classical music for solo piano, and uh, we are joined in our discussion of it today by an extremely special guest, so happy to have her on, Kelly Moran, a composer and pianist herself, as well as the artist behind um, one of my favorite albums of the last few years, 2018's Ultraviolet. Me too. uh, As well as so many other great things. Uh, Kelly, how are you today? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. You're so welcome. How are you guys doing? Uh, We're we're surviving. I mean, we've we've been waiting to do this episode at as long as I can remember. This is one of the first um, things we talked about with this podcast. So, you know, we got lots of notes. We're really amped. Just um, it's lifting me above the COVID depression right now, the COVID haze. Yeah, I have to say this this has given me like a new sense of purpose recently. Excellent. You know, this has been such an aimless year and this was such a nice project to have because as soon as I started listening to it, I just, I had so many thoughts. So I have like a whole bunch of notes I wrote. Kelly just held up an iPad for (laughs) listeners who can't see full of notes. (laughs) Yeah. Lots, lots of detailed notes. Your name popped to mind pretty early on because we, we wanted to get, you know, a trained pianist and a composer and a, you know, who, who would have some perspective on this. And we didn't even know you were from Long Island. The Long Island perspective is everything. That's probably even more important than the piano aspect, I think. So the other day you emailed me like a screenshot of a Google Maps showing that you are like a five minute drive uh, away from the studio where they first recorded this album. Yeah, that was really bizarre to learn, um, just to find out that I literally live in the same city where this album was recorded. Wow. So I feel especially connected to it, just knowing that it was made minutes from where I live. Can you give us a little mise-en-scene of like what the area is like? Give us like the visuals to accompany this uh, Billy Joel music as we're listening. Yeah, so the town that I am currently in is called Glen Cove. Um, (laughs) It's on the North Shore of Long Island. Uh, It's a peninsula, so there's many parts of it that are surrounded by water. Um, The studio that this was recorded at is apparently called Cove Sound Studios. And I have seen this building before. Um, It's not necessarily like on the water or anywhere super special. It's just kind of like downtown in a really nondescript building. I remember I actually saw it for the first time this summer because um, 
I had to park in the parking lot for it because they had like shut down the main street in Glencoe for outside COVID dining. So I had to go to this area that like I had never been before. And then I was like, oh, there's a music studio here. Like, I wonder like what kind of space it is, you know, what like what kind of music is made here. Um, and then when <laughs> I got asked to do this podcast and was researching the album, I was like, oh, my God, it's like literally was made right here. Like crazy. That's unreal. So uh, for any listener who is um, unfamiliar with Kelly's music, first off, I would just recommend it in the highest possible terms. Uh, Kelly plays prepared piano, which means that using uh, various physical objects inserted onto the strings, it sort of really drastically or subtly changes the tone of the way the piano sounds. It can become very percussive, almost to the point of sounding like electronic music, and performs, uh, at least on ultraviolet, these wonderful sort of immersive improvisations and then kind of edits them uh, down into sort of in the manner, I guess, of an electronic musician into the tracks on the album and accompanies them with synthesizers and sort of electronic effects and production. And one of the reasons that we wanted to talk to you about this is because your music is so sort of like forward thinking about what solo piano music can be and do and sound like. And and this Billy Joel album is so sort of the opposite of that. Well, it's a, it's a, in a manner of speaking, it's also, you know... It's pushing forward, forward thinking in its own, in its own way. way. Yeah. In what? Some, it's pushing something <laughs> for sure. So, so what was your what was your general uh, impression of this record when you first put it on? Well, it's kind of triggering as a classical musician. <laughs> I mean, just to give my background, I, despite being a pianist who's also from Long Island. I'm not super familiar with like a ton of Billy Joel's catalog. I just kind of know <laughs> the most popular hits. Like I just know like that, like what his thing is and what the mm -hmm. most like popular uh, material is. Uh, but I know that he has like a very distinct style in that, in his like, you know, piano man type regard. Um, so to listen to this, like knowing like what his, like that Billy Joel sound is, to listen to this record where he's basically just like LARPing as a bunch of, <laughs> as a bunch of classical um, composers. Um, it was a little strange, but like I could understand the philosophy behind it. Like I understand his like compositional motivation to like, like let me do a piece that sounds like Bach or let me do mm -hmm. a piece that sounds like Debussy or whatever, you know, um, I understand that inclination, but I also feel like it, I don't know. I, I have a lot of thoughts about it. we can we can go into it but my overall impression was just like you know classical music when I think of it it's so much of it is defined by like the proportion um and the balance um and especially not just the structural balance but the balance of emotion um and I feel like that was all kind of like thrown out the window in this album because <laughs> the one aspect of Billy Joel that I feel like does emerge very strongly is like this like American bombastic, like mm -hmm. very like, like a lot <laughs> type music. Mm -hmm. If that makes any sense. Oh, oh yes, yeah. absolutely. Very much. Um, there's a lot to sink our teeth into with that. Yeah. 
Um, um, but yeah, that was just kind of like the first impression. But yeah, you hear so many different classical motifs throughout the record that like I would hear a phrase or a melody and I'm like, oh, like, was that Beethoven? Or like, that sounds like a quote from Debussy or something. And it was kind of like messing with me a little bit. So I'm like, I, I see what he's trying to do, but there's so many moments where that emerges and it just confuses me. So, <laughs> What's your relationship as a pianist with the music, you know, like Debussy, like Chopin, Liszt, that he seems to be um, trying to sort of LARP, as you said, like, <laughs> is that music that you, that you, ha- that you play for pleasure, listen to for pleasure? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, it's funny, like, in the early days of quarantine where I just was kind of like in shock from the situation, Mm -hmm. I wasn't really feeling super creative and like wanting to like tackle my record and like finishing what I was working on. Um, So to kind of like find the joy in playing piano again, I started just like learning like some random Chopin pieces. Oh, cool. And just kind of like going through that process again, again, because it had been a minute since I'd sat down and, tried to learn someone else's music um it was really comforting and satisfying to be like oh i forgot like this is how chopin's mind works and it's really beautiful and complex and i love how like emotive and deep it is um so yeah i definitely like i love like all this music that informs this album like i love yeah i'm a trained pianist and i grew up playing all these composers like bach beethoven chopin um list brahms like everything that is like distilled into this record. Like I, that music is like really, really close to my heart. So it triggered a lot listening <laughs> to this music, you know? Cause I, I hear exactly what his references are and how he's um, filtering them through his Long Island piano style. <laughs> Winston is also, Winston is our resident pianist and uh downloaded like a bootleg copy of the score to fantasies and delusions the other day and did you did you take a crack at learning any of it winston Uh, absolutely not i mean i'm a pianist (laughs) but i'm not uh i'm not a good uh classical pianist or sight reader but i did follow along so hard it's uh unnecessarily so yeah like just like (laughs) well we'll get into it we'll get into it that was one of the things I thought about constantly while I was listening to it is I was like, I can't play this. This is insanely difficult. Like it's exhausting to listen to at times for a lot of reasons, but just like as a pianist listening to it, I was just kind of having like, Oh my God, like this is hard. This is physically demanding music. Yeah, for sure. It seems like every moment, as you said, either needs to be like bombastic, whether it's sort of through the showiness of the playing or like the abruptness of the dynamic shift. Like it feels like everything needs to be like a big moment to the point where like they all just sort of flatten into like making maybe very little impression on you at all. Yeah, that's oh, that's that's one of my notes here is that because there are so many big moments, it starts to just kind of feel very samey. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. Um, it lacks that like emotive nuance that I feel like makes classical music so effective. Like sometimes the beauty of classical music can be like the simplicity of the emotion that it's conveying. Um, And sometimes when you try to overdo it or make it too flowery or, you know, too showy, it can kind of diminish the intended effect, I think. It's also, we should say, an 80-minute album. It's so long. It's a, 
it's interminable. Yeah, yeah, I found myself falling asleep the first couple times I tried to make it through the whole thing. I'm not ashamed to say. It's yeah. really long. And I'll also admit that I listen to it on Spotify, which I don't pay for because I don't really listen to Spotify. So it took me even longer to listen to it because <laughs> I endured commercial breaks. Oh, that, that's as God intended. It was like a two hour <laughs> journey for me. Wow. But it, I, it was kind of nice. Like I would have these moments where I would just get jilted out of it. And then I'd be like, okay, like, got to get back in the, the zone like what composer is next <laughs> well thank you very much for putting yourself through that uh on behalf of this podcast yes thank you i'm happy to do it so usually at the top of the show there are a few things that we like to do uh one of which is for winston uh winston fancies himself a bit of an impressionist i look, different kind of impression not in the sense of Debussy, but in the sense look, of it's, uh, it's been the listener's that throughout the season that have encouraged me to keep doing this segment. I wanted to discontinue it. Um, I mean, but the demand has been so high that right. I, um, I keep the trying to bring my A game. are clamoring at your door for more impressions. Time. Yes. So, uh, right. I, I have prepared an impression and I actually did a lot of re- research for this. So I'm hoping that uh, you will be able to guess who it is. And that um, it'll do an honor to um, this person's memory. Okay. Oh, God. <laughs> Wait, are we being quizzed right now on a composer? We'll find <laughs> out what we're being quizzed <laughs> on in a second. <laughs> uh, hello. I am a uh, composer uh, for the piano, for the piano uh, renowned in my time and today uh used on many chill classical playlists um, are you chopin i am friedrich chopin the beloved <laughs> oh, wow. composer of solo piano music steps. etudes mazurkas <laughs> polonaises and i uh i am known for having a lyrical melody in the right hand and a propulsive uh, a romantic tension building in my left hand and uh so i i gotta know where you uh like where were you doing your research for what chopin's speaking voice Um, might have been actually i really didn't do a good job on that i did look at polish accent videos but there it's more like i think polish accents more like all it's more like i am a russian it's like i am a polish person here uh Kilbasa, that kind of thing, I feel like is more. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's more closer to Russian. I'm not sure what I just did there. It's kind of like a Peter Lorre. Sort of robotic. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Rob- robotic. Yeah. That's uh, like a uh, bi- so bi- bicentennial one, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, it would have been. Andy, you could have kept it going a little longer. I had a lot more to say. <laughs> I know. You know, you should just feel free to interject as Chopin, like throughout the podcast, if he wants to come back. Yeah, yeah that's I have a list one because list the kind of maybe, an asshole. Maybe you can sort of develop the impressions a little more as you're. It'll be like practice for you to uh, to get the impression a little more realistic as I'm, we go on. I'm, are you saying you were impressed by that, Andy? I mean, I it had a lot of potential. Wow. <laughs> I think you should respond to uh the chopin influence on this record as chopin oh i'd like to hear that too yeah that's a big what did what does friedrich think Uh, that would be that would be like what percentage of this (laughs) like a very high percentage of this record i feel like so i might only i might be in character the entire time 
Um, hey, that wouldn't be such a bad thing. Wouldn't be the worst. Wait, should we say? I mean, Kelly, you have a. Re- this is gonna air. Uh, the day before your new release comes out, I think December. Th- oh man! Yeah, you want to tell us about that? Yeah. So, um, I I'm releasing a split with Purient, uh, coming out on Hospital Productions, um, and it's called Chain Reaction at Dusk. Uh, side A is a couple of tracks that I wrote uh, in fall of 2019 and uh, the other side is a couple of tracks that Purient wrote around the same time and uh, yeah I'm just really excited uh, because you know we were really excited to have this release come out obviously like we were hoping for different circumstances because we wanted to tour and do stuff together but um we just have like a really special bond. Like I think a lot of people might not put the two of us together, but um, we met a couple of years ago and just like instantly hit it off. Like we have so many of the same like music tastes and kind of overlapping interests. So we just have this like really natural chemistry together and we've played music together before and toured together. And we just really wanted to do a project together because we just obviously we're best friends. So <laughs> I think I saw you perform at the one Oh tricks thing together right yeah yeah that was where we uh we initially met and uh he was kind of the stage had all these different levels and he was stationed next to me and we would just be talking to each other a lot during rehearsals and I had to actually kind of cue him for this one uh this one song that he was singing during the show because uh Dominic is a very unconventional musician and perceives time a lot differently than other musicians do. So if you're going to try to cue him by like counting, he's not going to like <laughs> count, you know, mm-hmm. he's more of a feeler than a counter. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had to like, phys- like do like a big physical cue for him to like, let him know when he was supposed to like come in during this one song. And, uh, yeah, I don't know that for some reason that really bonded us because during the show it was always a really intense moment and uh, yeah. I feel like that that cueing among musicians in an ensemble can be sort of a weirdly vulnerable uh, moment that I feel like I could see why it would lead to bonding when it's like, okay, I'm making eye contact with you now and we're sort of like, I don't know, you have to sort of open yourself up to the other person in an interesting way. I didn't even realize that he was in the Myriad Ensemble. Yeah, because he sang on a, a couple of the tracks that were on the record, Age Of. So he, mm. because we did the uh, first round of shows in New York, he was around. So he came and actually sang on those tracks. Um, but yeah, I think like performance wise, he he's the kind of person where like off stage, he's so like relaxed and sweet and kind. And on stage when, you know, he's prurient, um, it's like he's a different person. He's just one of those performers that gets so in the zone that when you see them on stage and they're in that performance mode, it's like you're just seeing a different person. It's like you're just seeing like true, I don't know. It's hard to describe. It's like something you only see with like so few performers because it's so special and like they're just in a completely different mode when they're on stage and just like having that contact. When I saw him, his face was so intense that I was like, whoa, like, you look like you could actually kill me right now. <laughs> like, that's how, like, strongly you are performing right now. But, like, seeing that kind of, like, intensity and dedication as a performer, I was like, damn, I could learn from this and just, like, harness that kind of, like, um, that complete, like, uh, sense of unbridled, like, 
dedication to being immersed in the music you're performing. Cool. I'm very much looking forward to hearing the whole record. Yeah. I've just heard the one track that is on Spotify, Helix 3, right now, which is awesome. And uh, it's also, I just admire the commitment to the split album form, which I feel like is not something that very many <laughs> people art. do. Yeah. And a lot of labels, I feel like, would be like, no, don't, like, sounds like a cool idea, but, like, we want a new Kelly Moran album or something. So it's, I'm glad to see it coming out, sort of an idiosyncratic release. That's cool. Yeah, well, I'm still doing my, like, full-length records, and I think it was, like, Warp was cool with it. I mean, not a lot of people do splits, but they were cool with it because I had done an EP after Ultraviolet, and I also did another EP for, like, the Warp box set. So I had, like, been putting out a bunch of little Mm -hmm. things, and, like, I don't know. I have, like, uh, between, like, touring with him and and doing those shows and, like, having this kind of, like, constant musical friendship going it just kind of made sense to like cement it and like I feel like the split like I I listen to like a lot of like metal music and splits are so common and like metal and noise and I just wanted to like do something in that world because it's just such a good format totally well Sam uh do you want to sort of situate us in the world of Billy Joel Circa 2001, uh, when Fantasies and Delusions dropped on the world and made its uh, indelible impact that no one will ever forget. Yeah, yeah so- I can. I was under the impression Winston was going to do. Oh, sorry, the bio. Winston. Are you going to be doing that? Do- Billy Joel bio. <laughs> you're the Joel guy. You're you're the king, <laughs> King Joel. You you. It's in your blood. It runs. Okay. Sometimes I. Um, Sam Sam is the resident Billy Joel head among us. Is that fair to say? That's fair to say. Um, I wasn't preparing to do this, but I'll try to do it in a <laughs> I, way. I thought you were preparing. <laughs> Honestly, wait. I, <laughs> when did we talk about me doing the bio? Well, I thought it was like, Andy does Aerosmith, I did Buffett, you do Joel. Wow. But... That's okay. I can whip. I can do this. Uh, quick. I can. I can also. Uh, Sam, you're a real pro. I yeah. I, I can also cut in uh, a full a full bio uh, later. But well, here's what I'll say. I'll do. I want to hear the bio because I need to. I need to be educated. Same. Okay. Yeah. All right. I'm gonna try to. I'm doing this completely off the dome, <laughs> and I want to do it in a way that seems like thematically coherent with the material we're talking about. So basically. Billy Joel, okay, from Long Island, uh, piano player, loves music. Um, In the 60s, okay, here's what I'll say is that Billy Joel is a lot more chameleonic than people think. So this, while this is like his most notorious genre exercise, it's not his only one. Um, So in the 60s, he's in this group called The Hassles, and he makes like kind of psychedelic music. And usually he's placed as the front man of these groups because he... Um, you know, he can like write songs and kind of keep a tune and he has a pleasant singing voice. Uh, that group doesn't really work out. He doesn't like the whole psychedelic thing. He doesn't like drugs or anything, but the next band he starts is called Attila. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you know this Kelly, but he was in a proto metal band that was like barbarian themed, like they dressed up and had wrote these songs in character and they're sometimes credited as being the first American band to use blast beats. 
Really? Yeah, which I think has been... That's unreal. Un- <laughs> yeah, so I'm never, pretty sure. I never would have gotten that. What year are we talking about here? This is like late 60s, like around the time of the first Led Zeppelin album. Um, yeah, he's like... It's like a total... Uh, for him, he's like really embarrassed about it throughout his whole career, but I do think it's kind of cool. Um, so I did the, not know that. Yeah, the music's like still out there. Um, Sam, like, you're you're also a pretty deep metal head. Like, do yeah. you do you give credence to the idea that they're like a pioneering metal band, or is that something that <laughs> Billy Joel fans just like kind of say? Well, Billy Joel fans don't say it. It's just like there are things that resemble blast beats on that okay. album, but I think it's like kind of accidental, and I think it's not in the way that like metal bands, extreme metal bands, would later implement it. But I do think it's kind of funny. Um, and I think it like speaks to his, um, like search for what his sound is and like capitalizing on a market. But anyway, so that doesn't work. Attila is kind of, a uh, like a dud. He goes through a really dark period. Um, like doesn't know what he's going to do with his life. He deals with some really serious depression, um, and something about Billy Joel is I feel like he always has this, well, how hard can it be kind of like thought about making music where he's like, I hear other people doing it. So like, <laughs> yeah, I could probably do that. And which is basically what his first album as a singer songwriter sounds like to me. Yeah. The album uh, Cold Spring Harbor in the early seventies, which I revisited for the first time in a while. And like, there's some sparks on it, but it's a lot of like, the Beatles had just broken up and there's a lot of like Beatles impressions. Yeah, it sounds like a Paul McCartney. I listened to it this morning too. It's just like sort of like seven different versions of Hey Jude or something. Like yeah, that. exactly. It's that the thing he would return to later, I feel like. Yeah. Um, so to speed through what happens next is he signs to Columbia because he wants to be on the same label that Dylan is on and is a huge hit with Piano Man, which is his song about like his days playing at a piano bar. Um, something Billy Joel is really good at is like capitalizing on pop music moments. And he kind of does that for a long time. He um, has some albums that feel like genuinely like, I don't know, like if you look at an album like The Stranger, it's kind of just like hit after hit. Like which, those types of albums are always impressive to me and that's one of them. It's like mid seventies. That's probably his most iconic slash best right. record, objectively. Right. Yeah, scenes from an Italian restaurant. Yeah, the title track, only the good die young. But yeah, so like, whereas a lot of songwrit- singer songwriters from the seventies kind of like take a nosedive in the eighties, Billy Joel sort of levels up as a pop star. Um, he makes an album that is. An early example of this kind of thing that's a collection of homages called An Innocent Man. That's like him paying tribute to a lot of the music of his childhood, like doo-wop and early rock and roll. Is that what The Longest Time is on? Yeah, and Uptown Girl and uh, Keeping the Faith. Uh, then he like gets more into like the big 80s production, has a huge hit with We Didn't Start the Fire. Um, then it's the early 90s and He's kind of cemented in this place as a sort of boomer, safe, middle-aged icon. And he makes an album called River of Dreams that does really well commercially, critically. Um, and he decides that it will be his final collection of pop music. Um, he wants to focus on touring. 
and he's trying his hand at writing classical music, and he thinks he's done everything he can do. He doesn't want to embarrass himself. We'll get into some more of the reasons, but that basically takes us up to speed. Something that I found uh, sort of sympathetic and endearing about this period for Billy Joel is reading that he basically had started to feel like he was exposing too much of his own like actual kind of private life and thoughts and feelings through his songs to his whole audience. And like part of the reason he wanted to make classical music is he was like tired of kind of bearing himself in that way, which is like, yeah. I don't know, to me that it was a window onto a relatable part of a, uh, a person that I otherwise don't really find very relatable. <laughs> well, the, the I, river, river of Dreams was this real person, the most directly personal album he had done, right? And so it didn't do yeah. as, as well. At least he says that. Or he said that I as think recently as last year. He was like... Yeah. I kind of think that's bullshit, though. I mean, like, every artist, like, gets that happening to them. Like, oh, like, you know, people think it's autobiographical. And like Billy Joel, I would I don't think it happens to him like exponentially more than anyone else. And other artists keep going. Like, I don't know. No, to I me, mean it's that, not like Yeah, that was just part of he was like, because he has this narrative that it was so personal for him and he put so much into it that he still clings to. And then he was like, The industry fucked me. And like just the I found it striking that he's still even though that album ended up going quadruple pl- platinum not long after it was released and had a huge hit on it he's still like they thought it was a failure and like i bared but bared myself and like gave it my all and so he's still in two th- in you know 2019 or whenever he did that interview with vulture where he says this he's still clinging to that narrative even though like you know what i mean it's proven, yeah like proven himself, to be of himself as some kind of underdog in that scenario yeah, so i, I <laughs> find like, that psychologically interesting about him that he just you know it's such a linchpin for explaining why he has not made a pop album since 1993 <laughs> that he has to well, like really dig into it i think yeah, it gets we, people to stop asking him like i think there's i don't think that's like the whole thing so wait is that how long it's been since he's made a pop album like he has yeah. not made one to this day since 1993 he's That's put out like correct, one-off yeah. singles but no albums so yeah so fantasies and delusions is his l- most recent album of original material and it came out in 2001 so what has he been doing since then mm, exactly uh he plays at madison square garden like constantly it seems <laughs> like <laughs> monthly yeah yeah i was looking at his wikipedia over the summer and i saw that um like he just does tons of live tours and just they all have like the same name it's just like the number gets like like the year gets updated right he had the the face-to-face tours with elton john multiple yeah. ones yeah he he mo- yeah um, like multiple tours have the same name and i was like okay like you've just got like your regular thing like yeah you've settled you're, like, into your business model exactly exactly that's what i was trying to say like that's what you're selling right and he yeah. and right and shortly before a couple you know two years before uh fantasies and delusions he said that he was he claimed that this last tour that he was giving his last tour in concert. So that was his first saying that he was retiring. Uh, and then he made this album and then he was back on tour in 2002 with Elton John, where I guess he, the tour ended because he like 
was too he like was suffering and like from alcoholism and just like shut down a show and went to rehab after that so that's what bookends this period of writing show pen and list and uh schumann ripoffs is dark darkness crucial another crucial detail about current day billy joel that for me just seems essential to understanding him is that he and andrew cuomo are like best friends which is just very easy for me to imagine the two of them like talking about hot rods or something like that. Yeah. So over the summer, um, when, when like COVID was in full like lockdown effect, mm-hmm. here, I mean like we kind of still are, it's just like different stages of it this year yeah. in New York. Um, but like earlier on in the year, Um, when like everything was shut down and there was really like nothing to do like anywhere my like escape would be just going on long aimless drives around Long Island Mm -hmm. (laughs) like and just like listening to the radio and just kind of like getting lost in like the like winding roads along the north shore and um one day I ended up I was like driving past Bayville and I ended up in this like super beautiful like kind of lush neighborhood with these giant giant mansions and like both sides that I was driving down this road like were surrounded by water and I was like oh like I've never like been in this area before like this these houses are beautiful like everything is like this is like McMansion level like huge like serious serious money and I couldn't help but just think when I was driving down I'm like damn I wonder like how much music I would like have to sell in order to be able to like buy one of these houses someday. Um, So anyway, I like drove back home and then I was like Googling. I was like trying to figure out, I was like, where was I? Like, where did I end up on this drive? And I found out that I was in this place called Center Island, which is like one of the most expensive like areas that you could possibly live in, in the North shore. And when I was looking at the Wikipedia page for it, I saw that Billy Joel had a house there. There you go. That answers my question about how much music (laughs) I would have to sell in order to buy a house there. And I was like, okay, cool. That's like definitely very realistic. Um, I think also like Rupert Murdoch had a house in that neighborhood. It was quite quite a list of uh, residents there. And I was kind of like, all right, maybe I have to reevaluate my life goals. (laughs) You you and Prurient should do like the Elton John and Billy Joel like mega tours (laughs) (laughs) just like for the next decade. Exactly. As soon as touring is a thing again, every single year we're just going to have a tour until I can buy that house in Center Island. (laughs) Amen. You'll have to talk progressively more shit about each other in the press, which is something that they started to do over the years elton was like i don't know why why he's just you know coast he's said like billy's just coasting you know i don't know why he doesn't make another album and like oh man and then like threw him under the bus for saying that stuff elton elton did like in the late 2000s was just like constantly and then bill and then billy was like oh that's just elton you know like we've been through so much together that's just what he does you know it's kind of kind of nice that's sad kind of sad and cute horrible (laughs) that's kind of beautiful actually they're like real housewives yeah yeah it is funny like billy joel like ever since fantasies and delusions he's always talked about how he does like make music but he just doesn't play it for anyone like it's purely he gets joy from making it and he has no need to release it which might also just be like he doesn't need the money (laughs) right it does it does make you wonder 
I mean, he has multiple houses in Long Island. He most definitely does not need more money. But I can certainly understand, you know, the the mindset he's at, you know? Yeah. He's just reached like a pure point in his compositional trajectory where it's just for him now. <laughs> yeah. there, there, he's there's a, something he's ascended to the ultimate level. Of yeah, and by the drama. sounds of this, no one else would want it. So. <laughs> we Sorry, I, I want to go on a really quick tangent and I, I promise it Please. won't be long, um, but it, it's just related exactly to this kind of like purist mindset. But um, I, uh, one of one of the things I do each week is I watch this skating podcast and um, recently they had on this uh, pair boy skater who's kind of a bro and um, they, he's a white boy rapper and his music is like really, really cringe. Like, you know, he has like 30 subscribers on YouTube and it's just like terrible white boy rap. And Mm. the hosts on the podcast were like kind of gently like mocking him. They're like, yeah, so your music career, like what's like, what's the deal? Like, what's your goal? Like Eminem type level stardom. He was like, man, you know, like, I know people might mock me and like, they might think it's like stupid what I do. And like, like, I don't care. Like I do music for me. Like, this is just to me, like music is my happy place. Like skating is so hard, but like music is my, my happy place. And I do it just to make me happy. And I was like watching, I'm like, damn, like your music is so bad, but like, bless your heart. Like that is so beautiful. And I was like, and I was like, man, I need to like, I need to have his mindset towards music. Like I need to ascend to that like pure level. Like I can't all be like, you know, album, score, project, remix, whatever. Like I need to ascend to like the white boy rapper, like purity. Meanwhile, level. Joel's making headlines for saying that exact thing in like uh, New Yorker profiles in 2014. Exactly. Yeah. See, like it's all, it's all the same. It's all the same. Yeah. It's <laughs> sort of like, I mean, we can talk as much shit about Billy Joel as we want, but all of us are musicians and he sort of, one in a way he figured something out if he's like i don't have to make any albums anymore i can make music purely for my own pleasure but also i'm like a fucking gazillionaire and i hang out with the governor and have my three mansions or whatever Mm -hmm. it's like all right well Mm -hmm. that seems like not such a bad life although he seems so he seems like he's got a lot of darkness in him also yeah well, he is from Long Island. <laughs> he's, he's, he's got the classic <laughs> Long Island. I, I lived in the North Shore of Long Island for a year, and uh, he's oh, got really? that classic. I lived in Huntington, yeah. Oh, Long cool. story. But, yeah, it's a, it's a real authentic Long Island darkness that he exudes. For sure. Yeah. Um, well, let's get into... Because this music that Joel ma- is making now, by his own account, is classical music, so it's just been since this fantasies and delusions that's been the trajectory from from uh then on for him creatively so let's let's figure out how it all started and get into this album yeah uh what should we what should we sample first kelly what was your what track arrest arrested your (laughs) what grabbed you first oh man um hmm I feel like the first half of the album grabbed me the most. Maybe I was like tired by the end. Um, I really, um, Reverie, let's just start with the first one. Yeah, start at the beginning. Because immediately when you look at that title, you think of like, oh, like French French Impressionism, like this is like what he's going with here.
It achieves like the baseline thing of sounding like the thing that it's trying to sound like. It'll kind of, but you know, it never has. It never has like the actual. The thing about all these things, but especially with trying to do something like Debussy or Impressionism, is like it has to go somewhere unexpected, or it has to, like the harmonic language, the chords are very right, like it's pretty simple, basic. Uh, stuff. I don't know. It has it has that kind of plaintive, melodic thing in some of the. I feel like some of the, the voicings, but I don't know. Am I wrong about that? <laughs> no, I think it's. I think it's missing that kind of like unique parallelism that like Debussy and Ravel have that make it feel like really, really dreamy and and floaty. Like this is kind of doing that a little bit, but it definitely feels like an impression of impressionism. (laughs) Yes. Um, Actually, I have a lot more notes about the second track because it's a little more obvious. It's called Waltz Number One. (laughs) Um, The song actually like kind of made me do a double take because there's like this little melodic motif in the beginning feels like it's directly ripped from the Moonlight Sonata, (laughs) like in the beginning. but there's also like a lot of other classical, or sorry, not Moonlight Sonata. Um, I think Appassionata. Appassionata yeah. Sorry, yeah. But there's like a lot of other classical motifs that I recognize from like a lot of other pieces, like just embedded in a lot of these songs. And this song is one of those times where it's like I feel like I hear something that's so familiar that like I know is from another piece of music that I can't place. Um, and I don't know. It just takes like he takes. It feels like he takes a lot of similar classical motifs, but it tends to feel like a parody of classicism at times. Like this song reminds me of when I used to be a pianist for ballet classes and I would have to improvise something that sounded classical, mm. basically. Yeah. Um, it kind of has that feeling that it's like trying to be that thing. Right. Sort of like using the cliches of the language or something like that. Right. That one's interesting because it has that opening thing that sounds like Beethoven or whatever, and then it just goes straight away from it into this like lilting melody thing, which honestly, if you listen, one thing I noticed from the other direction listening to a lot of this stuff is that the basic melodies or themes at the center of this, of them, of the songs, which are, are like quite simple and like, very linear descend like like just very very kind of banal uh moving and like modulating a little bit in the way that like a billy joel song does like they just kind of sound like billy joel songs on some level so like that melody that waltz melody there just like has i could hear i could hear him singing that (laughs) and like having it be a piano ballad at the end of one of his albums he can't break from just like being a guy who likes to do like pop melodies or and like kind of clever turns of phrase quarterly well yeah i mean one another thing that's like ever present in this album is like there's always this level of like bombasticness to every song like every song is like jam-packed with like so many ideas and like every song reaches like goes up to 11 you know it's like it's funny because like even like that first the first track that's supposed to be like very impressionistic the difference is that like a lot of impressionistic pieces will 
simply stay in that very like chill, relaxed, floaty vibe. And like, we'll just kind of have that character to the entire track where if you skipped through it on iTunes, it would still be very like calm and slow Mm -hmm. moving, but he never like uses that delicacy, like for these pieces here. Like he always uses a very heavy hands and they always reach like a very dramatic level instead of being more subtle, like these other actual classical pieces do. Right. The, the, one of the worst for that, I mean, is partially by virtue of its runtime and also because of like what it's referencing is Aria Grand Canal, <laughs> I think, which I feel like it has like a Mozart slash Verity thing going on. It's funny. I I actually liked this one. <laughs> um, it, in some ways, it's more appealing. It's, you know what? It is very long. And this is the kind of album where sometimes, like, this song, this track is very long, but I would sometimes have to do a double take when I was, like, at Spotify, when I was listening. Like, are we on a new track or is it the same track? Because they totally. all kind of, they all eventually get to, like, a similar place emotionally. Exactly. So, right. So it starts out like this, and then it just has, like, it goes sort of his idea of development or whatever of like developing an idea across this is just like yeah to have big loud or like super flourishy diversions and then kind of go back to something soft and melodic so but like it has the most interminable like ending like dramatic coda and stuff just like really banal <laughs> he just can't help himself like i literally just wrote that down when when he gets to these like very like big schmaltzy moments like this is ridiculous like, <laughs> exactly it's just it's so much and it, it, he just can't help himself because this is this is who he is it's like funny how the same problems that crop up in billy joel's pop music also crop up in his classical music which is like the pastiche the like reaching for cliches and it's, it also occurs to me that he kind of like structured the album like a pop album. Like it's 12 songs, like one yeah. of his regular albums. And it has kind of like the long stuff. And then there's like a break for like the shorter things. It's like he's really, it's like the things that kind of save him in the pop medium aren't there to save him this time, which is like he can't express himself or give you like a hook to hold on to or use words to like justify the huge emotional things he reaches for so it ends up you end up i don't know like feeling like sorry for him in some ways (laughs) the structure was kind of weird i have to say for like it doesn't like feel like a classical album when you listen to it just because it's such a hodgepodge of so many different things and then it's like at one point there's just like a minute and a half of bach Right, the Bach is the most jarring example of that. It's so so jarring. And it's just like, as soon as you hear it, we're like, okay, now we're doing Bach for like literally 90 seconds. Then we're back in like this, you know, this like very dramatic, like big schmaltzy American take on classicism. Yeah. Um, A funny thing to me about this album is like, as like what I said before, is like if you're coming to it for just kind of wanting something to sound like classical piano music in any given moment, like it does basically do that. Like it's like he got to the point of like, okay, well, it sounds like the thing just on the surface level that it's supposed to sound like. But when you read about the way that it was made, um, 
it was like Billy Joel just kind of playing like one hand melodies into a computer, someone else transcribing them, then sort of bringing them to uh, this guy, uh, Hyunki Ju, who's like the actual pianist, who seemingly like did all the arranging himself, or at least a lot of it. <laughs> so it's like even the stuff that you can sort of be like, well, this is impressive on some level. It's like very unclear how much Billy Joel was involved in the parts that are impressive in their way. But there's his name right on the cover. <laughs> William <laughs> yeah. Joel. Opus <laughs> one. But, yeah, I, I wondered about that too. The, the computer thing. I was wondering if like on these like 30 second note, these huge cadenzas and like embellished things, if it was like Billy Joel was just playing with a cursor on a staff, you know, like <laughs> let me add these notes around it. and lo- Or if it was like just them just like, uh, <laughs> He was like, play something huge. And the pianist just like did this run. He was like, all right, we'll write yeah. that exact. We'll write I, and that and down. I wrote that, by the way. That's my idea. So there's this, there's the, the piece that's called Fantasy. It's all the way at the end of the album. It literally has a piano roll in it. Like you literally do that to the string. I'm like, you, you really like have that in here? Like, he's got it all. That. He's using all of the capabilities of the instrument for doing anything Joel-esque. Maybe he thought he was going to be dropped like after the album. He was like, we need to put every single thing we can in here in case I never get to make classical music again. <laughs> Which, I don't know. Might be right. There, there's a like Wall Street Journal sort of interview with him slash review from around the time of the album with like the classical critic of the Wall Street Journal who sort of like really flays him in a way and is just like super kind of condescending about his ambitions and like sort of damning him with faint praise and stuff. And uh, there is, but there's a quote in there uh, where the writer says, perhaps defensively, he says he has listened to 20th century music. And then here's the quote from Billy Joel, Schoenberg, Stravinsky, Boulez, Copeland, Gershwin, Stockhausen, John Cage, Samuel Barber. I'm not afraid of the 20th century. I don't dread it. I'm just beginning to understand its dissonances, its tonality. My goodness. Which I really hope that someday the sequel to this comes out and it's all like fucking Char- <laughs> Charles Ives, like super dense, like dissonant music. Yeah. Well, uh, but I also about. imagine he's sort of like Googled like list of 20th, 20th century composers <laughs> and like just pulled that down. I was like, I've listened to all these guys. Yeah. I mean, what's fascinating like is that there is nothing like... So so we talk on here a lot about about the, these tropes of like artists getting back to their musical roots like getting back to the blues when they make a record or think like Joel does it on an innocent man where he's like this is the music of my youth you know 50s rock and roll doo-wop right, something a lot of older artists right. do and, and and it is a thing too for for uh a lot of artists like whatever Elvis Costello Paul McCartney did it like you know, to do these kind of classical experiments, but there is just no, you know, there's all this rich kind of like catalog of like neo romantic music by 20th century composers. Right. Which is like kind of ironically reframing gestures from these composers into something that's like postmodern or, um, just recontextualizing it in the way that, you know, like composers started doing in the mid 20th century, but like there's just none there's no perspective to this at all like i don't know it's so it's kind of so easy to do that too is all you have to do is like not do exactly you know like 
it's so easy to have like a little flourish of okay you know but there's nothing here there's i don't like i don't mean to you know completely tear this album apart because like there are definitely some really lovely moments um i just think a lot of them are swallowed up by these like really kind of attention grabby chords or like these ostentatious cadenzas um it can just feel overly emotional but in a way that's just too much like I don't want to be on the emotional journey that these pieces are taking me on because <laughs> it's just too much, you know, yeah. it never really stays in one emotional place for too long. Like there'll be a tender moment, but then it'll immediately get swallowed up by something that just yeah. ruins it for me. Yeah. The titles, the titles leave a lot open, you know, for, for mood stuff. Like, I don't really know what the mood of, the the mood of being on a carousel, for instance, there there's all this picturesque stuff in the title, or it's just like sweet invention. But they yeah. all have parentheses except for the Bach ripoff. Right, right. Because <laughs> there's nothing else to say about that yeah, one. Invention in C minor. Um, I will say the one that's subtitled "On a Separation," we should probably talk about because I read that it's one of the ones that he wrote with like lyrics in mind. Um. And he wrote it about getting divorced from Christy Brinkley and mm. like her taking the like their daughter and him like returning to the house alone. And the lyrics were like part of the lyrics were we say goodbye and I watch as you leave and then I slowly return to the quiet house. So that's the thing he's trying to communicate here. Which is sort of like even just that phrase as read by you just now is like more poignant to me than the music actually is. <laughs> but like in interviews, he's like, I found the way to like convey this like depth and purity of emotion that like doesn't even require words. And it, for me, it could use words. Yeah. <laughs> even as someone who's not a Billy Joel fan myself, well, it's like at the, at the your end words of, are better than this. At the end of every Billy Joel song, I imagine him disappearing into a quiet house, you know? That's where he, yeah. That's where he goes back. What's to. funny is, so he in the interview he like mentions those lyrics, and he's like, "I was like writing phrases I would have never sung." It's like I could totally imagine you <laughs> singing those. Like you've sung way more like embarrassing and stark lyrics than that. Like I don't know why those gave you pause. <laughs> that's very true. This is the this is the track that I wrote. He just can't help himself. (laughs) This is the one, which now I feel kind of bad, but maybe he was just really getting all of his emotions out. Well, no. Yeah. yeah, It's like spot on because it's him trying to do what I think was a lot more natural for him in pop songwriting, but without any of the crutches he had, which are like, you know, like using cliches or like leaning on like pop music from his past, which he was a lot better at emulating or at least a lot more convincing. Like I like when I'm talking shit on Billy Joel, I'll talk about his song Allentown, which is like my favorite Billy Joel song. Me too. But it's very clearly a Springsteen rip. But in mm-hmm. order to sort of like amass the Springsteen working class authority, he literally needs to have like factory sounds in it going like <laughs> <laughs> and like he has to keep going like huh, ha like it's so like costumey and so there's so much effort to it. Yes. But yeah. Which is like sort of sit along the lines of what Kelly was describing in this music earlier, where it's like, here are sort of like the stock gestures of classical music to sort of 
convey that this is classical music because otherwise you you might not be able to tell because it's just me billy joel making it i i learned while researching this as a tangent about allentown which is my favorite billy joel song is that it was for years he couldn't finish it and he was just calling it levitt town and he had different yeah. lyrics to it which is kind of hey, long island which is a perfect oh. it's kind of perfect like joel metaphor of just like it's 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 not coming from like I'm writing a song about this town that I have some kind of feeling about or interest in. It's kind of like all right, I have this thing, and I'm like, hmm, something town, and I'm gonna, oh, I'll do it this way in this style, and like we'll really force it, we'll really nail it in, you know. It's like that's how he works. He he yeah. like he looks for that magnet that's gonna pull his whatever thread of an idea into like a package, whether it's you know this is going to sound like list or this, you know, this is going to sound like, uh, whatever do do up or Bruce Springsteen. Uh, a story about Billy Joel that I always thought was a good metaphor was a story he tells about like in the sixties about, um, when Bob Dylan was like really popping and Billy Joel was with like a group of friends and he was like, yeah, I love this guy because his lyrics don't mean anything. They just sound cool. <laughs> and his friends are like, smoke some of this and you'll like you'll get bob dylan's lyrics and billy joel like smokes some pot and is like mm, you know i think i got it right the first time <laughs> he's like he's like he's like all that happened when i smoked pot was like i giggled a lot and i got hungry like <laughs> i kind of i don't know he's like he has this sort of like I'm, and i'm not like this is kind of like a beauty to that story but i think there's like a real like like, I have it figured out, like, everyone else is wrong, like, you know, that element to his persona that, I don't know, I relate to it and I resent it at the same time. <laughs> also, I'd be, I would have been shocked to learn that he had any other reaction to weed other than, like, <laughs> doesn't do anything for uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Well, he, you know, he, he got heady in his time musically. We kind of breezed over it, but... um. It's worth noting because when there there were orchestral arrangements done of these pieces later on that he would like a few orchestra, like the Philadelphia Orchestra did some program with him involving one of these pieces. I think it's the one, the Steinway Hall one, which I thought was funny because Steinway Hall is like the piano showroom in New York for Steinways. And it kind of sounds like some shit that someone would just be playing there in the background to sound impressive. You know? <laughs> it's but like, like the guitar center music of classical exa- piano. It's exactly. Yeah, yeah. So I had one of my high school piano recitals at Steinway Hall. Yeah, there wow. you go. Sick. Does this bring you back? Yeah, totally. I'm I'm right back there right now. <laughs> yeah. It's actually a very nice room, but you are absolutely correct that it does sound like something you would just hear at a piano <laughs> show room. Yeah. But um, anyway, so they did some version of this with the orchestra, and then he did a couple of the songs by Billy Joel I think are funniest, um, Scandinavian Skies and Where's the Orchestra, which are from the very ambitious, semi-conceptual second side of the 80s album The Nylon Curtain, which is basically like trying to do like high art, late 60s Beatles, like I Am the Walrus style, like... uh, weird chromatic chords and uh you know so it's interesting that he was doing that stuff which is not something he would ever do in normal concerts kind of just to play into and and this music as to like play into that arty side of himself 
uh, like that self-consciously, like to make those connections is funny to me, but it's um, fu- not to derail this conversation too much, but you talking about the nylon curtain just now, Winston reminded me of, of a conversation we had years ago where you were talking about <laughs> maybe like that you had been invited oh, to yeah, yeah. join a one-off band that mm-hmm. was being pulled together specifically to cover the entire nylon curtain album in concert yeah um, did that ever happen we don't do we didn't do what we often do on this on this show which is kind of go through our backgrounds each individually with joel but my um i dabbled in him as a guy who wrote piano songs and sang since i was in middle school uh obviously he was someone that i was aware of and liked some of for a while but i was always just kind of got weirdly obsessed with this nylon curtain album because it's so pretentious and funny. Like it's like super, it has Allentown on it, but then the second side is like Billy Joel trying to be psychedelic, like the equivalent of him trying to smoke weed basically. And uh, yeah, my friend and I would make, make jokes about it a lot. And uh, he wanted us at one point to cover, do a recording and cover the entire album she didn't end up doing but um he did invite me he lives in pittsburgh which is where i grew up and he invited me to go back and do a show with him uh at a at a pittsburgh music festival and just cover the nylon curtain and i didn't go but he did it and uh is that a major regret for me it, for you yeah, it is go? it is yes <laughs> it sounds amazing <laughs> failed failed uh thing so sorry tim um anyway we should talk about anything we like on that. now. I would I, I think that the best, the one moment on this album where it sort of sounds like Billy Joel doing his own thing, doing his own style of classical music. It also happens to sound like something written by like the high school, like your hotshot, like high school choral director wrote a folk song arrangement. And this is like the piano backing for it, which is this air Dublin-esque at the end. So it kind of has this like folky, pseudo folky thing uh, at the beginning, which kind of sounds like a piano ballad, like, and so it goes, or a Billy Joel piano ballad with this vague Irish folk thing going. (laughs) I liked this was one of my favorites actually it was one of the more mellow ones and it stayed mellow longer than the other tracks did it has this interesting thing that happens though where it really starts to sound (laughs) he kind of goes i mean this kind of sounds like keith jarrett to me I mean, it's like we're back in the same emotional space that we've been taken to like 30 million times on this already. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, no, no. But like, I'm, I'm the kind of person where like I love ending records on like a nice mellow note. And I really thought that's what we were going to get here because the album doesn't have any tracks that are just like purely chill or mellow. Yeah. Like he doesn't give us one like breath. Oh, of, no you know, relaxation on this entire record. And honestly, there's so much classical music like that, that it's honestly baffling that he doesn't go there. Like you have an excuse to write something very like simple and proportional and elegant and beautiful. And everything is very bombastic and chaotic. And I was really just hoping that last track would just stay (laughs) in that space, but it didn't. And it's 
defense, it's I would fine. say that the way in which it goes off, where it goes, it <laughs> doesn't exactly sound like all the, all the other things that he does on Bombastic are just really corny, like whatever faux Beethoven, Rachmaninoff, like real all this super. And this is just like this kind of percussive, semi-folky thing, some somewhat like celtic new agey at times and that's why i kind of i was like oh this is like keith jarrett solo concert vibe <laughs> that's what i thought about it but um that is not to say that it preserves a mood at all because it doesn't and you're right it just goes to a million different places i wonder if that dynamic that you are talking about kelly is like Billy Joel clearly seems to me like a guy who feels like he needs to prove himself in most situations. And I feel like coming to this world of classical quote unquote composition, like I could see him kind of feeling like people are going to write me off and say like, I'm just this pop guy. So I really got to kind of show them what I got, you know? And I feel like I've been in situations as a musician where I'm like, feeling a little bit over my head and I react to that by overplaying a little bit just to be like, I got to kind of show these people that I'm like worthy of the situation that I'm in. And I could see Billy Joel's impulse to just like fully load these songs up as sort of arising from that of being like, I got to show the people that I'm like the real deal that I kind of belong in this like classical world, which makes me feel sort of tenderly toward him if I think about it that way Mm -hmm. oh definitely I mean show me like a classical composer who is not like raging insecure and like trying to (laughs) fulfill that void through writing this kind of music you know totally that's kind of that's exactly how it feels when you're listening to I mean not to not to be completely negative about it but (laughs) compensating for something vibe yeah yeah it's just like, I don't know why he doesn't take a moment to just be like vulnerable and mellow. Right. But he, he left that all in the 70s and 80s, I guess. Hey, eh? it's the 70s. The 80s are pretty aggro for him. I mean, Joel was always pretty aggro. He never said yeah, too vulnerability, far vulnerability, I don't feel like has ever really been a Billy Joel strong. Yeah, only for a minute. Yeah. And then he then he charges right back out of it again. Yeah, he kind of has like two types of songs, which I like uh rom- like really romantic love songs and then like these songs like these songs about like angry embittered people you know right. those are kind of like the two modes he has was there anything else anyone liked <laughs> that was that one we just heard was was the highlight for me <laughs> i kind of like the when sweet for piano sorbetto is that sorbet like is that just mean <sighs> is it a tribute to ice cream you know sorbetto i'm sorry but like if you're literally going to name a song after sorbet like i'm not going to take you seriously as a <laughs> but, all right what does this have going and the for song you? i'm sorry i'm sorry but this song is just as superficial as a dessert that is you know not as good as ice cream it's true. damn go in <laughs> fitting metaphor for this music <laughs> frankly because it's just masquerading as a lesser version of wow sports. get him I can't believe it's not classical. Right? <laughs> exactly. Um, so it's true. not classical, it's sorbetto. I, I, I take back my positive uh, comments about this, which is it's sort of weird, sort of weirder <laughs> than the other ones, that opening, and it's two minutes long, less than two minutes long, and those things are both Yeah, it good. gets out of the way, which I appreciate. 
but I was also curious about like what is the unifying factor of this naming convention for these pieces <laughs> in terms of the parentheticals and everything yeah yeah or even the suite like if you if you put together three different tracks from this record and and said that those three were the suite like would you be able to tell <laughs> like which ones are supposed yeah. to be related to each other exactly. and which ones aren't yeah, no, probably actually. Oh, damn. I kind of wish I listened to the record without knowing, but I definitely don't think I would have been like, oh, yes, that was definitely like those pieces right. together, unified by what? Chaos, I guess. Damn. Uni unified by chaos makes it sound like it's much cooler and more badass than it actually is. The waltzes are in 3 4 and they're somewhat whimsical. So I got that. <laughs> got the waltz thing Me going. Meeting the, the bare minimum requirements for being a waltz. Oh. Definitely a waltz. The whimsy. Gotta love it. Sam, what did, so, what did you like on this? How did you feel? Because... Well, yeah. Go ahead. I mean, I'll say I'm coming to it. I know nothing about classical music, so this has been a really enlightening conversation for me. But so I wasn't like listening to it thinking like, oh, well, this is like Bach, or, you know, I was listening to it thinking just like this is supremely boring. <laughs> I was <laughs> I was really bored by it. And I, there wasn't like a lot of room to breathe. There weren't like you said, there's not really a mood to it. So you can, it's not even like you can't really just like put it on and zone out to it. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think the last song is a highlight because of that little like lilting melody thing. But yeah, for me, it's a low point in, in the catalog. Just <laughs> saying, it's the uh, worst no Billy Joel album. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, Damn. I would say so. Damn, that's huge. huge Sam decision. is usually. I feel like Sam, you're usually able to find the kind of sympathetic parts of the records that we uh, talk about. And, yeah. Uh, the fact that that's your impression of this makes me feel like it just really is very bad. Is there any, anything else anyone wants to talk about in particular? I mean... I mean, maybe we should compliment the pianist for yeah, how's, physic physically completing the task of that's forming and recording this music. As a classical pianist, what, what, yeah, what's like impressive about the the technique shown here is there anything pr about the the real piano playing anything striking about it other than just kind of delivering delivering those fast runs etc yeah i mean some of those runs are just incredibly fast i mean sometimes it's hard to tell how complicated some piano music actually is because you know i could go play some bullshit on the piano next to me right now and it'll probably sound really complex but i might just be faking it so there's no way of really knowing, but it's still just the sheer stamina required to play through some of these pieces that are so long and bombastic. Like if something is exhausting to listen to, then it's probably twice as exhausting to play. Yes. Fair enough. There's also like, I watched a bit of this little making of documentary uh, where Billy Joel and the pianist are just talking about making it. And there's even some footage of them working through stuff in the studio and and the guy's like playing something and billy joel is literally like standing over his shoulder at the piano being like come on man really dig into it 
don't be afraid of like that melody like you got to take it strong or whatever like, <laughs> it really I does real, look like a comedy I really thing do you have <laughs> that really audio for the up? guy uh let me see it would be good to get joel's voice in here just for a sec yeah, yeah just, have his perspective there's stuff like this i mean i write all the time people may not know it because i don't record yeah, it <laughs> i think this is the same video i was talking about a different part of it i have a theory that some someday maybe people will rediscover classical music <laughs> and go this stuff is really great you know who is who is the strong was man that the there? goal of this album <laughs> that's why i don't write words now i feel like music can communicate in a, a, a lot deeper ways one of the things that he's trying to do besides expressing himself as an artist is uh, he's yeah, he's hoping that he will be able to get a lot of other people attracted into classical music well yeah it didn't work for me i guess <laughs> it didn't, didn't pull me in you're not number one classical fan now yeah. no you're not gonna go out and get a chopin uh, record um i actually quit <laughs> either either that or you'll your next record will uh move to heights of bombast as opposed to very... um, renouncing my long island citizenship <laughs> wow well this album did chart it was number one on the classical charts for 12 weeks so maybe he, he proved the world maybe he was right in the end you know what you're right props <laughs> to him we really are all wrong because he's just a pinnacle of musical success in every way, shape, or form. And, you know, ultimately, what do we much know? Middle to late 19th century. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you guys saw Center Island when I was driving around there, you would understand why he stopped making records, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I don't begrudge him. Uh, and now, we alluded to this earlier, but I, you're going to find this of interest kelly i think is that he one of the things that he's allegedly working on is something called the the scrimshaw pieces which he says he may never show to anyone but they are uh, telling the story of long island from its pastoral beginnings to the arrival of the europeans and uh he said i'm imagining one of the quotes is i'm imagining the prow of a ship and a puritan hymn so it's about long. He's writing music about Long Island specifically in the 19th century. So that's gonna be wow. firing on all pistons if that ever sees the light of day. It's like the Prince Vault or something. It's in there. One day we're gonna get the Joel Vault. Wow! I really hope that we get it because I would just love to learn about my heritage through <laughs> the magic of Billy Joel's music. Sweet uh, Center Island. Sweet number three, Center Island. Part there is one. something poignant to me about the idea of this sort of like aging superstar pop songwriter, like kind of sequestered in his mansion, like writing classic, writing bad classical music that like the world will never hear kind of convincing himself that like, it's because they don't understand his genius or something. Like if Paul Thomas Anderson or someone wanted to do like, you know, the biopic of like, it's like citizen you know, Kane, th- yeah. this, yeah, exactly. It's like a citizen Kane type character that like, I don't like the music, but I am pretty fascinated by like this kind of character of Billy Joel making it. Yeah. Well, it's like the opposite of like, you know, most of the time people sell out by writing pop music, like deviating from 
right whatever the traditional thing is that they were doing and this is kind of like the opposite of that where he's pivoting to the more traditional thing but he's still doing it in an extremely bombastic and poppy way yeah so uh good for him well uh so this is a weird on moment every here. episode of this podcast what's that this is weird to be doing what we're about to do see. i know okay so on every podcast every episode of this podcast so far leading up to this our final episode of the season we have judged each album that we've talked about according to the metric of whether it is a fantasy or a delusion, uh, which basically means like, if you think it was good, it's a fantasy. If you think it was bad, it's a delusion. And now we are sort of fully through the wormhole and uh, judging fantasies and delusions according to whether it's a fantasy or a delusion. So it's a big moment. We've been wow. we've been building up to this for months now. Yeah. Closing the loop. Yeah. Wow, what a crazy moment. I'm going <laughs> to I'm glad you could be here to share it with us. I don't know if I can get through mine without kind of choking up a little bit. Are you going to do it in the voice of Chopin? <laughs> <laughs> have to have to pay me more for that. Get my rates up for this this pod. Um I will go first. And just to end on a hopeful note, I'm going to oh try to God. come up with an argument for why this is a fantasy. Wow, dude. Yes. Wow, dude. <laughs> and I will say that compared to whatever other Billy Joel album that he might have made in the year 2001, <laughs> there's a reason that we're, say, talking about this one and not like fucking Rivers of the Imagination or whatever the previous one was. Oh, wow. <laughs> First off, how dare you? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There is a there is a certain level uh, of like willingness to try something new, uh, of ambition, of kind of rejecting what the marketplace wants of you uh, that I do find endearing in this. Uh, I can there's a sadness that comes through to me in the music that I don't think is intentional, but that I feel nonetheless about sort of the <laughs> character of Billy Joel as the man behind the piano or behind the computer that he's like dictating these horrible pieces into <laughs> forcing this poor man to play them according to his specifications as a sort of aesthetic object it fills me with a lot of feeling that I don't think was necessarily put there by its creator, but nonetheless, I do find it poignant and moving in its way. So Interesting. Yeah. just to go out on a high note with the season, I'm declaring wow. it a fantasy from There's my point your, of view. There's uh, your Metacritic pull quote. It fills me with feeling. <laughs> Andy Kush. Exactly. <laughs> okay, who's next? Uh, I'll go next. Well, I also want to start on a positive note. And also on a cumulative note, which is to say we've been doing this for 10 episodes now. And there's a lot of lessons that I think we can learn from Billy Joel compared to the other artists we've talked about. One, he stopped while he was ahead. Mm -hmm. He made an album that did pretty well. And he said, I'm not going to embarrass myself. I'm not going to have a string of uninspired albums to fulfill a contract. That's my last word. And it was. Um... And in response, he found a way to make music just for himself, which is kind of like the ultimate goal in terms of how inspiration works and how the music industry can corrupt like your impulse to make art. 
Um, a lot of the artists we talked about put out musicals that bombed and embarrassed them and spent years to recoup the money on. Billy Joel made one that was a huge hit. You know, not easy to do. Which used some music um, from this, right? Yeah, this music was used interstitially, so it served a purpose for something a lot of people liked. Um, yeah, you know, he never did any, like, dumb collaborations. He never, like, rapped like Jimmy Buffett or made an album about his website <laughs> or made everyone, you know, like, embarrassed. But um, he did make this album. Well, so there you go. Why doesn't it work? <laughs> when, when, why doesn't it work as like his final statement of integrity? Uh, it occurred to me when Winston called the Nylon Curtain an arty album. And I was like, why? Like that album feels artistic. And this doesn't to me. Like it doesn't feel like inspired. And I think it's because it feels to me more like a homework assignment. Like it sounds mm. like someone gave him a bunch of samples and was like, try to do this, or like, let's see what you can come up with. Um, it, yeah. To me, it lacks inspiration. It doesn't feel like he made it with like a unified vision. It kind of sounds like he's just like amassing material and hoping it adds up to something, which it never quite does. Um, it's just bad music to me, which <laughs> then made me think, well, what is Billy Joel good at? Because it's not writing lyrics. It's not like if this had his brilliant poetic lyrics, I would like it. Because I don't think that's his gift. And it's clearly not composing. Like, we don't talk about, like, the insane compositional work of Billy Joel. And I think it's really just, like, melody and immediacy and communicating a point and getting in your head, which is something that he's really at odds with when he's making classical music because maybe he's too reverent to a particular era, or maybe he just like doesn't know it well enough, or he just doesn't have the skill. Um, yeah, because it's like he, he talks a lot about how he quit writing songs because it became too revealing, but I never really like see him as a super revealing songwriter, <laughs> like Joni Mitchell, you know? Like, it's not like I hear his songs and I'm like, this person is bearing their soul. <laughs> right. To me, he's like the ultimate craftsman, the person who's like, I could write a hit that's catchier and smarter than what's on the radio now, you know, or like the Beatles are done. I can write a fake Beatles song <laughs> or like Bruce Springsteen's on hiatus. I'll write the next Springsteen single. And I just don't think that those skills come in handy when you're writing really esoteric classical music that's meant to sound like something centuries old. I don't really think it has a use. And I also don't even think it's meant to be listened to. It's like really hard to <laughs> yeah. listen. I think like, there you go. It's so true. I think a lot of instrumental music you listen to, and even if it doesn't impact you emotionally, you can follow a kind of arc with it. And that just never happens here. So for me, it is a delusion, sadly. And the Metacritic single line pullout from that review will be, the ultimate craftsman. All right, I'll go, I'll go quickly. I um, first uh, first of all, on a positive note, I enjoyed uh, like I thought I was gonna like have nothing to say or think about this other than to be angry as somebody who loves classical music and and also loves a lot of the composers that he's ripping off. But it did lead me to think about this exact question of like what does this say about Billy Joelness and his ethos in music making overall? And I was surprised by 
how much I kind of thought about this as just being like the same thing as an innocent man almost or, or exactly what Sam is describing, just like trying to mimic and at the center of all of these songs, there are is melody. Like that's the thing that he hangs his hat on, but he doesn't, he, the, the way he approaches melody is just by kind of semi quote, like a lot of the composers that he's referencing, it's like they're working in more of these little motifs and he kind of tries to, you know, follow the shape of those motifs so that he like just like gets his way out of doing anything like a melody that you might remember in the way that you might remember a Billy Joel melody, which is just to say that does feel like exercises that people aren't supposed to hear is like, I can do this. I don't have to do just Billy Joel, but he is still doing Billy Joel. So it's kind of like, yeah, like him taking a course where he's trying to get further away from sort of what he does and pay tribute to this music that's relaxing him in his retirement or that like, you know, I don't know. It's just, um, but it's, it's a, it's mind boggling to me how little of a perspective he has room in his like artistic wheelhouse to, to provide here to contextualize this at all, to like try to maybe even put a little bit of corny pop stuff in there to offset the like, really you know yeah you can kind of feel him sketching each note out in these little dumb melodies that you know like what would beethoven have done you know i don't know it's it's it is sad in a way that uh that he didn't i feel like he could have made it more corny and i and i would have um maybe got something more out of it you know if he had just interjected a little bit of his dumbest self as opposed to his self-hatred into this you know i don't know there are a lot of different ways to read the thing the psychology behind it and uh maybe i'm wrong there but delusion damn wow well i'll try to make this quick because i feel like i've rambled a lot no, <laughs> on not tangents at all. today not at all. well i feel like when i'm judging any kind of art i have to look at try to objectively look at like what is trying to be accomplished here and this is clearly him going on a classical excursion through different styles and uh composers that he's influenced by um but to be completely honest i don't think it's completely successful in the way that maybe he was trying for it to be because personally i just think that it's missing um the proportion and the elegance and the structure and simplicity that classical music really means for me personally. Um, and I think that because it's trying to hit all of these like stylistic peaks and kind of just tram cramming all of these ideas um, into single songs, it kind of misses the mark for me in that regard. And it just ends up being a little bit too much. Um, so as much as, you know, I respect Billy Joel as a pianist and as a fellow Long Islander, for me, this album is unfortunately a delusion. Mm. Uh, I wish there was more real Long Island energy in it that we could talk about. Not till the scrimshaw pieces come, come out, will we be able to? One thing that did cross my mind while 
we've been talking about this is that, you know, I would never have found out if I didn't do this podcast that this record, first of all, existed. And second of all, it was made five minutes from where I live, which is also five minutes from where I made Ultraviolet. So the fact that Glenn Cove gave us both of these records is, I just think, a beautiful thing. Yeah, two two classics of uh, (laughs) contemporary piano music. Uh-huh. <laughs> do you think forever intertwined do you think like <laughs> sometime coming up when you're sitting down to write something kelly that like you might do something and something from fantasies and delusions some some thought of billy joel might cross your mind oh i hope so i really hope it does <laughs> as soon as we're done here i think i might just play a little piano and hopefully hopefully i'll be playing a beautiful little waltz yeah, yeah. so <laughs> sing us a song of piano man. Mm. wow well I think that's we about covered. It brings us to our close of our episode. This is, and our this is really what we do here, Kelly. This is what it's all about. We get to we sink our teeth all the way into this thing that nobody cares about. It's and, great. I'm I'm very glad you do it. And and thank you so much for all all the research that you did and the time you spent with it because it was oh, it was it was my much. pleasure. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yes. Right. So this is the uh, the dress rehearsal. So we'll do the actual taping <laughs> uh, tomorrow. Okay. Good. <laughs> and congratulations on your finale episode. Thank you. And thank congratulations you on your on release. Honors tomorrow thank you thank you so much i hope you like the music oh we will i'm sure i yes. hope it's a fantasy and not oh. a delusion oh i'm sure i'm sure sure it will, it will be, be. <laughs> okay thanks so all much all right take care all everyone right. bye See ya. bye that was so good yeah it was great S- suitably epic we are now at the end of the last episode of the first season of late era it has been a long road We've listened to some good music, some bad music. We've gone from the tightest of friends and brothers to barely able to stand each other's presences. Well, we don't. Luckily, we don't have to do that um, because of. You guys did come to my birthday party the other day, though. Yeah, I mean, I did. I stopped by. That's true. It was. I came because you owed me money. Yeah, and there was also the. I don't know if you guys read the rider to the contract. Uh, but there is fine print for my birthday party and my birthday party only that you guys are sort of contractually required to attend. So I'm glad that you uh, that you were able to make it through or might have had to end this season an episode early. All right, Sadomsky, do you want to do this on behind closed doors or do you want to do it on the air? Do, because I, 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 it's an undercurrent and people know that it's here, but I think, you know, do we need to let's let's get some closure on this thing. I don't care. I don't care. I have nothing to hide. <laughs> yes, you do. You remember? I don't care. You remember when we when we used to sit around at the Double Windsor and talk about our dreams for you know, what the our future doing doing stuff together, you know, and then just the three of us getting together talking about podcast ideas. The first time we heard Chicago nineteen, getting back to the roots of what we're all about, and then suddenly. I mean, first you were going to start a podcast with our Welcome to Chicago's rival, um, inspired by Bruce Cost's ginger ale, and that didn't happen. But to my knowledge, maybe it's in production. But then suddenly, it's this in production. Well, there it comes out. This is the kind of stuff that should come out right now. And you're doing this movie stuff, and you still haven't sent over the contract for some reason. And do you want to explain why that is? Listen, I'm just going to say this once. 
what I do outside of this podcast is none of your business. Andy, it's none of your business either. We're podcasters together, and we have this rapport, and we have this shared experience that we do together. As far as I, I'm concerned, that's all we have other than that one photo that we took at your birthday, is that, Andy. Is that, is that what it's come to? Yeah, that's what it's come to for me at least. And where did it, it sounds where like it's, I have my guys, gym buddies. Guys, guys, I have my guys, gym buddies guys, who have guys, my back. Guys, guys, guys. Let me stop you. Sam, you in particular feels like you're getting a little emotional here. Why don't you tell me how you're feeling about Winston and I can tell Winston how you're feeling and then Winston can send a message through me and I think that maybe we could reach a more civilized plane of discussion here if uh, it's moderated a little bit. It is in okay. Andy's con in our contract that you have to allow Andy to moderate any conflict between somebody's got to keep a cool head around yeah. here. What I've noticed is that when I started this podcast, I thought I was going to be talking about rock music. When with my you friends. started it, sorry, when Please, I came up Winston, with time, okay. when I came up with the idea Give for this podcast, I thought it would be amazing to talk about rock music with my friends. Suddenly, I realized that we have a thousand sponsors and we're not even rocking out anymore and we're doing it all over zoom and my buddies at the gym say well, you have a podcast but you're not actually sitting across the table for and i say yeah we do it on zoom and they say that doesn't sound like a podcast and i say you know it doesn't feel like a podcast and at a certain point it's not really what i signed up for so winston what i'm hearing from sam is that, he is that he's wear feeling a little insecure and a little unappreciated and maybe he had certain ideas about how this show would go that have gone unfulfilled. It sounds like maybe there's a related or rather an unrelated problem with his gym buddies that maybe he should just sort out on his own time. Uh, not on Osiris Dime, but that's okay. But I think we can get to a point where uh, you guys see eye to eye on some of these issues about the direction of the show. What do you think, Winston? I think that that what Sam just said there at the end about his gym buddies is really revelatory about something we've talked about, Andy, about the Oids Ray problem ah. with Sam. We've yeah. talked a lot about do we his really want to go? Do we want to go into this on the air? I, well, the anger, that, seems... the anger that emerged there, directionless. I'm Quasi Cucumber, man. I'm calm as hell. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. I just, I, all, all I've gotten, the trajectory, he, he kind of tries to play it cool and act like I'm the one flying off the handle about the contracts and everything. But, you know, sometimes it finds its way on the airwaves here and there across the two podcasts that we do together, the two podcasts. If you don't think that people associate us publicly with one another and that you have a responsibility to the two other people here when you make and other... And, and, and to Grady's. And to yeah. Talking about too many sponsors. Grady, uh, a wonderful cold brew company. You can also brew it hot. Remember now, go on to uh, Grady'sColdBrew.com and put on uh, in the code this late era We 20. can't even have a conversation. This happens even when we're not recording. You just turn around and say it to whoever's in and the you're, vicinity. And you're Mr. You said it to my mom. You're Mr. No Sellout. What's that little film project you're doing? Okay, that's art. Well, I think that's an off. art film. Yeah. That's an art film. I'll believe it when I see it. Cause... Yeah, I'd like to hear you say that to my dojo. Uh, to, <laughs> to, uh, <laughs> I'd like to... <laughs> my sensei at the dojo. <laughs> Damn it, I don't even know what you do in your spare time anymore. Um, well, I, I just... I do think that you i consider you my brother okay and i don't know and if i appreciate that and you don't 
I know you don't feel that way about me, but I would like you to consider not uh, I know you want your physique to look good to look strong especially since you're trying to break into film I don't agree with the way you're doing it but I understand that you may f- artistically feel that's the way you want to go fine we're in a situation I where that you, very much well you need to tell us a little bit more about that but I I understand creatively why you're doing that and why you might need to feel like your physique is in top form however you don't need to go about it that way, man. You don't need to take that shit. You don't need to be injecting that shit with your bo- your maskless gym buddy boys, uh, your you know proud boy motherfuckers over there in Staten Island or whatever that are are telling you that it's not a real podcast because we can't talk in person. Okay, I don't know how you got associated with these characters, but it doesn't. You can get what you want a different way. The way that we. The way we started it, the pure way, just guys rapping about ideas together over, over a cold one or a margarita or a Grady's or a Mie Keller Brewery beer or a Bruce Cost, Bruce Cost ginger ale with those fine chunks on the bottom that we love so much. Over a Modelo, over a Budweiser, um, over... What else have Bed Yanglings? Over Yanglings. Keep an eye out for yeah, the second season of Late Era. Yeah. Late Era All Intervention. A gritty, raw, unflinching look at steroid addiction in the podcasting industry. These are personal stories of real people, people you've listened to on this very podcast, reaching the end of their ropes, trying to get ripped, trying to tone their physique, trying to impress their meat-headed gym rat buddies in Long Island. Late Era Intervention will explore all of this coming next year from Osiris Media. Later is hosted by Andy Cush, Sam Sadomsky, and Winston Cook Wilson. It is edited and produced by Winston Cook Wilson. Original music by Winston Cook Wilson. The executive producers of Late Era are Brian Brinkman and RJB. Logo designed by Lizby Art and Design. Late Era is a part of Osiris Media.